I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Anastasia Uglova, a privacy educator in crypto. Anastasia leads communications and ecosystem development at Lighthouse, the open metaverse navigation engine. She's also held communications and business roles at NBC, NPR, and Notion, and recently earned a master's in InfoSec at UT Austin. Anastasia, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Anastasia, do you remember the first time you heard the term surveillance capitalism? And for people who are not familiar with that term, what does it mean? I do remember coming across it and going, oh, this is very germane to the things I'm already interested in. Let me go deep. Surveillance capitalism is the business model that profits from the aggregation of all of the data exhausts, all the data points that we leave behind us as we just go about our daily business online with little awareness of where it's going or who's storing it. And so it's become digital gold. It fuels the digital economy and it's pretty much the subject of everything I've been studying since 2016, 2017. So why has it become this basis for the internet economy rather than some other means of funding all of these mega businesses? Because it's free. It doesn't require anything of anybody. You just have to go about your daily business, go make friends, go shop. And what you leave behind you is your patterns the things you literally like, not just Facebook like, but the things you're interested in, the things you're not interested in, who you're interacting with. All of these things are actually incredibly predictive when you aggregate them and build a model around how would this person act if they were given a certain treatment at a certain hour when they're particularly predisposed to either be sleepy or angry or some other emotion. And so the idea is that you give people a free service, say it's search or social media or photographs, you never have to pay for it. But the saying goes is if you're not paying for it, you know, you are the product. And I think that that's, it's so common among the people I speak with. Like if you're, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, but maybe, maybe that needs to actually be said more. I think more people need to understand what is at stake and what they're giving up when they're saying, sure, I will sign up for this free service because someone else is paying for it and it's the advertiser. Was it inevitable that we ended up with this system or like what would have been the alternative? Is it just a transaction-based system in which people do pay for every service they use or is there something that we're not, we're not thinking of? I think this goes into something I've been thinking about lately, which is just the incentives behind venture capital. So venture capital is very risky capital, right? The point there is to essentially have a failed portfolio. 99% of it fails, but one of those companies is your unicorn, right? It goes to the moon and it carries the rest of the portfolio. What you need for that and what what you need to pay for risky capital is for a company to grow really, really, really fast. You need to have a lot of users and you need to keep growing that like hockey stick curve. And so in order to have that kind of growth, you also have to make it really easy for people to onboard and paying for something. So setting up a subscription, deciding to fork over some cash, even if it's actually not that much, even if it's like $5 a a month, it's still, you're giving your credit card up. You're thinking maybe this is not something I want to do because I want to go to the movies. There's just a more immediate trade-off. And so users are not likely to sign up for something that's, that's paid, whereas free, there's just no friction there. So you just use your 
already existing Google login or your already existing Facebook login. It's super easy. It's super convenient. And that fuels that, that hockey stick curve of growth that is able to carry the rest of the portfolio so that all the other investments may fail, but one succeeds. And looking at that type of business model, you don't instantly think, wow, there's so many ways this could go wrong. But I think, um, you know, as we've seen, it actually does when the only metric that we're using to, to measure how well we're doing in technology is growth. What are the other metrics that we're not measuring? So I know recently Meta has put out their earnings report and it's actually been down for the first time ever. I wonder how much of surveillance capitalism only works when the advertisement dollars are big and when there's a lot of value, right? Because you were, you were talking about, oh, we're going to add a lot of users quickly. The advertising money comes in. But now Meta has hit like market saturation. There are only so many pockets of the world that people can actually sign up to Facebook. We have to make new people to sign up new people. And with the advertising market potentially tanking because of the global recession we're sort of running into, do you think that's going to change and we're going to see more of these like surveillance capital for the poor and ad free for, you know, $5 a month, $10 a month? Yeah, I think it's actually going to get worse because we're we're not even thinking about the ways that surveillance capitalism will shape a more immersive, a more like persistent digital universe, right? Like we're thinking about when we talk about surveillance capitalism, we think about Facebook, we think about Instagram, we think about Amazon, right? We haven't really adapted our like mental models of surveillance towards 3D spaces. We talk a lot about what the metaverse is and when that's when that's actually going to happen. And that's maybe five to 10 years out. But there are companies actively working on that, including Meta. And Meta's not worried about whether the metaverse is going to be profitable right away. The idea is to be a large enough market player that you can capture whatever the business model will become in the future. Facebook wasn't profitable in the first years either. It took Shell Sandberg coming in and figuring out how to do advertising on Facebook for it to become wildly profitable. And so the idea is to like get out there, get first to market, own the metaverse play, own the space, and then figure out how to capitalize on the very vast richness of data that we're going to be able to capture when we're talking about biometrics, like how long an avatar is looking at something, purchase history, but then also the places they go. It's just such a much bigger playing field. A lot of your work focuses on digital identity. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between surveillance capitalism and digital identity? Yeah, uh, that's the, the most interesting thing to me is that we never really built the internet for human beings. We built it for protocols. So like we, we built it so that one email service can talk to another email service or one website can talk to another website. But it was never created so that like I can show up as myself and there's a representation of just me that is provisioned by me in order to interact with someone else. So when we when we got to a point where the internet was so pervasive that everybody else that everybody was using it and it wasn't just like big companies or someone with a who pay for a connection but everybody the best available template for identity was the email address but the email address doesn't belong to us really it's provisioned to us by whoever whichever company we're using whether that's Yahoo Outlook Gmail so from the moment that we showed up as humans on the internet we were already under a power structure where a company was like, okay, so here's your email address, but here are the terms of service that you have to accept every single word. Like you can't toggle and like choose 
specific terms that you like and then change the ones you don't, you accept all the terms. And so there's already a kind of power dynamic there where all of your identity data is being managed by a company that determines what may be good or not for your privacy. So we're not only not in charge of our own kind of privacy boundaries in the way that we would be working in physical space. Like I can determine at a party to whom I speak and maybe whom I don't share secrets with. And then maybe I might want to revoke consent from someone else by like disengaging from conversation because I'm fully aware of my, of my boundaries in physical space. And I know, I know where to go to modulate those boundaries. But in digital space, we don't actually even know how to change our privacy settings, how to modulate those, those preferences. And so we've kind of abstracted our ability to give real consent the moment that we were provisioned basically email addresses or logins. And now we have to kind of rest that back and figure out how do we become humans on, on, on the internet again? What do you think is the difference between the private provisioning of these identifying markers and public provision of these markers, right? I have an address. The address is given to me by the government, right? Like, yes, I like rent a place, but that place doesn't, that place doesn't exist on its own, right? There's an address, you know, the census gets taken every 10 years. I have a phone number that's a privately given phone number. And none of those things before did I think of as like a, oh, this person is controlling me or, or surveilling me in some way. Obviously, there's always been a libertarian streak of Americans who are like, live off the grid, like, let's move to Montana or wherever. But what's so dangerous about these private companies giving us these identity markers online? Because they're the ones that are keeping all of that data. So it's not, it's not a data store that belongs to you and that you have control over. In exchange for giving you that email address or that social login, all of the all of the activity that belongs to that login is stored by that company. So they determine to whom they sell that data without you knowing, without you having any granular or even like overall general control over it. And there's a really vast, rich marketplace for third-party data, which is what's driving some of the conversations right now about, about third-party cookies versus very necessary cookies, just the ones that are there to make sure that the, the browser works in an optimal way. So we've created an economy of data that is about you, an environment that knows so much about you, but that you have no idea that it knows. So like you interact online and everything that you interact with knows everything about you, but you're not even aware what those data points are. So you can't even take control over it or decide, you know what, I, I don't want to be visible right now. Where would you go if you wanted to make yourself invisible? To what protocols, what apps, where... How many menus do you have to learn to navigate to figure out just to make yourself a little bit invisible for an hour? How would you do that? But I can do that in physical space. I can decide to go home. And the, the problem in the way that we're building technology is that we're making, we're making decisions about technology that is, that is so different than the awareness of the average individual that they can't take meaningful action towards it. We've evolved to exist socially in physical spaces. We've, we've built sort of the social and mental muscles to exist in these spaces. We understand how those spaces affect us and we can make agentic, thoughtful decisions. But technology evolves so much faster than our ability to understand what's happening, what's changing. So we don't have the time to adapt, to understand sort of the, the new social contracts that we need to create the new adaptations, like personal adaptations that we need to 
that we need to have in order to, to be agentic individuals in technology. So that's sort of a coordination problem. This is a, a question for the architects of technology themselves to figure out how do we build environments that comport with human thriving and that reduce human suffering. Stepping back a little bit, how did you first become interested in these issues and, and concerned about the ways in which our privacy might be abused and data might be used in different ways that are against our consent? I feel like there's so many people that I know that say, oh, yeah, Facebook probably knows everything about me, but that's fine because who cares? I'm just watching movie trailers and shopping for items on Amazon, and I don't really care if they know everything about me. Was there some sort of either light bulb moment for you or experience at some point in your life that that made the stakes feel higher and inspired your your work on these topics? Oh gosh, absolutely. I remember I remember the exact moment I, I realized I was gonna study consumer privacy and fix consumer privacy is actually how I told myself I would go about it. <laughs> it was in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen actually. It was when the Cambridge Analytica scandal hit. And I remember I was at the time I was working in East Africa. Also working in tech and specifically ed tech, so working on education and workforce development and planning after six years to come back to the States and figuring out like, okay, what's my career in tech going to be in the States? It's I can't do the same kind of work I was doing in Rwanda in America. It's just a different playing field. And when I read about Cambridge Analytica, it was just, it was very much a light bulb moment. I remember even thinking about this as the light bulb I've been waiting to turn on. Because I'm a U.S. citizen of of Russian birth, so for me, the scandal hit in a really visceral way, and I felt almost like personally responsible for it because it was an instance where, because of poorly architected privacy policies, Russia was able to essentially hack the minds of American voters and use information campaigns to get them to vote a certain way or think a certain thing or believe something is true that isn't true. So interfering with the electorate of my chosen country. So I felt like, you know, I have, would have something to say about this. So that's really pretty much the, the genesis of my, of my interest in privacy. Not to get like way deep on the Cambridge Analytica stuff, but there's, there, I mean, there's some real questions about how much Russian misinformation changed the minds of voters. And the same thing's true about ad dollars, right? We never exactly know how much the ad changes your behavior. Obviously, there are a lot of people who work on this constantly and try to make it as clickable, as mind-altering as possible. But I mean, we get a lot of great free products, right? Like Facebook is a great free product where I can scroll vertical video now and not talk to any of my friends or family or see baby pictures or anything. Google is a good free product, right? That lets me search the internet in a way that I couldn't before. So yes, there are obviously some problems, but like, what's the real trade-off? What's the other option? Is this really the worst of all possible options for how the internet could have grown? I mean, I think it's actually pretty atrocious that we don't have a model of, of consent on the internet. Regardless of where the money comes from, it's, it's really weird to me that we've built an environment where where people cannot exercise basic consent to to know or not know things about other people or to let other people know things about them. I don't even really understand why we talk about consent in a legal framework at all if it only applies to the physical body. If someone is violated, then they have the right to they have the right to go to court about it. They have the right to some sort of mediation. 
but we think of the, the digital body, like what happens to our minds or what happens to how we're influenced as something that is less important or less urgent. But is that really still true? Absolutely. Ad tech has been linked to violence in Myanmar. Ad tech has been linked to violence in Kenya. Ad tech has been linked to violence in America, the Capitol riot, right? Like we can draw a line between algorithmically gamified hype and real activity in the real world. So it makes, it makes us vulnerable, right? It, it creates, it draws the fault lines in American society for bad actors to take advantage of. You know, this was happening during the 2016 election. Um, the kind of racial fault lines were being exploited by, specifically by Russia, to, put, to pit people against each other, put, pit Americans against each other, right? And these aren't real fault lines. This isn't necessarily that someone is, that someone is against another group. But when you astroturf an event, which I don't know, maybe we should define what astroturfing is, but it's not real. It's manufactured. It's the same state agency in Russia creating two different groups, pitting them against each other and saying, oh, look, Americans are so divided. Yeah, I think it's actually a really, a really serious problem. And it's not just a policy problem. It's, it's a problem of consent. Like, when did we get so far away from, from just like basic civil rights and civil liberties where we were just like, we just decided to say, you know what, our, our cognitive consent doesn't really matter anymore because there's capital involved. Like there's some things that are baseline important that are, I think, not for sale. I think consent is one of them. We talked a little bit about ad tech, and that's been a lot of the primary focus of our conversation, right, is this the way companies know so much about us so that then they can feed us ads based on those likes or based on the way we interact. But then you also talked a little bit there about the algorithm pushing certain things, right? Facebook pushing us towards more radicalism, YouTube taking like three videos before you are full flat earther. So how much of the problem is actually that these services want you to be addicted to them versus the like surveillance capital problem? And I'm really curious what you think. Like it, it feels to me like it's the same set of incentives. Like they want you to spend all this time on their platforms because that brings in ad dollars, which is a form of surveillance capitalism. Like, right? Like, is it a, is it circular? <laughs> yeah. So surveillance capitalism is just like a, a descriptor. It's just a thing that says, oh, we've noticed there's an ecosystem whereby we're product managers are incentivized to build products that are intentionally addictive, that take note of human heuristics, like the ways that we make decisions quickly instead of thinking about them slowly. So quick decisions, what heuristics we rely on, how do we gamify those heuristics? That's kind of like the slot machine or the infinite scroll and build more of those products to keep you using that same product, either to continue to, to serve you more ads or to, this is like years ago, but um, Azaraska and Tristan Harris at the Center for Persuasive Technology at Stanford were quite literally teaching the who's who of, of founders in Silicon Valley how to build persuasive products, how to keep people's eyes and attention engaged, which then translates to ad dollars. So that's, that's literally just what surveillance capitalism describes. It's not like someone said, let's make a surveillance capitalist business model and let's figure out like the inputs for that business model. It's just a descriptor. And surveillance capitalism will happen in any environment where we have data exhaust that's unprotected, that we can't shield in any way, where you have sort of identity that's, uh, that's abstracted from the user so they don't have control over their identity. It's actually fragmented across a whole bunch of different services where they've 
I want to say lazily, but it's not true. They've given away their consent by just accepting the terms, but not because they're lazy. It's simply because there's no way that a normal person whose expertise is, I don't know, pharmacology or they're a writer or they're an instructor somewhere supposed to read terms of service and understand what they're reading in order to give informed consent. So we have this consent theater, this like performance of consent, but it's not real consent, where we we trust that whoever architect the, t- the technology has our best interests at heart. Like we just expect that, well, I guess they're engineers, so they probably did this okay. I accept, even though it's teams of lawyers that wrote this document. And according to a 2010 survey, this is 2010, so a lot less data online in 2010 than right now. It would take nine productive weeks for the average person to actually provide informed consent if they were to read every single term of service, compare them to other terms of service of similar platforms or or apps and actually make a decision that's agentic. So all of this, this all of it is actually surveillance capitalism. And we will have it regardless of whether we're going to continue to, to be in centralized platforms or if we're going to move into this decentralized crypto world that a lot of people are thinking is somehow the answer to surveillance capitalism. Until we figure out how to manage data exhaust, give people control over their consent options, we will continue to be in a world where the environment around us knows a lot more than we know about it. I was thinking about the services that I do pay for online, right? Like I pay for Netflix, I pay for Hulu, I pay for Xbox every game under the sun system when I have time to play Xbox. But all those systems are learning things about me and trying to extract value from me as a consumer, but they do it through my dollars, right? Is that a better system? How do you think about those as different rather than the Facebooks, Metas, Twitters, Googles? I don't actually know the answer to this, but I think that when, you pay, when you're paying for one of those services, they're not selling your information. That's the point. That's the transaction, right? You are giving them your money so they don't need to make up the shortfall with advertisers. So if you trust that Xbox has the proper information security controls to keep your data safe, wherever they're keeping it, then you're probably okay. You are giving them consent to serve you an excellent service because they are learning more about you. It's when that information starts to seep into like the ether around us. We have no idea how to retract it. Like if you wanted to stop using Xbox tomorrow and just go hermit mode, you probably could. You just have to go to Xbox. But if you want to totally erase yourself from social media, you can't really do that because like Meta creates shadow profiles of people. Like you don't even have to have an account on Facebook or on Meta for them to know about you because they can surmise and infer who you might be because you, you are friends on Facebook. That's the problem. When you don't have consent, when we live in a world where, where things are enforced upon you, it's really difficult to have conversations about any kind of civil liberties. Like, How can we have any conversation about freedom or open society when we are forced to live in a panopticon? We don't have a choice to say, I want to live in this panopticon because it's a great panopticon, which gives me excellent first-person shooter games, and I could get out of it whenever I want. So obviously the inability to give consent or meaningful consent in using any of these tools is part of the problem, but it feels to me like another big part of the problem, and I will say particularly in the U.S. or in Western democracies, is like people say they care about privacy, but they don't really care about privacy, or they don't really, you know, like act in ways that are 
privacy protecting, right? And at the end of the day, or at least this is the argument is like, oh, people actually care about convenience more than privacy. And they like that when they show up at the airport, their boarding pass pops onto their phone, et cetera. And maybe it's a little creepy, but at the end of the day, it's like pretty useful. In that context, how do you get people to care about privacy? And also, do you think the tide is turning? Like, are, are people starting to become more aware and that's kind of changing, changing the conversation? Ah, uh, okay. This is, this is such a thorny issue for me. You literally can't get people to care about privacy. It is not their job to care about privacy any more than it is like my job as a traveler to care about the safety equipment on a 747. I didn't build it. It's not my architecture, but I trust that the people who have an engineering title have done the calculations and the tests and have produced for me and for for my delectation an airplane that will safely take me to Italy. I don't have to check their work. I don't have to care about any of this stuff. It's not my job. I have another job and it's a very important job and I want to stick to it. Nor is it my job to take time out of my day to peruse the term of service, which is 20 pages long. And compare it to another one for another similar service to figure out, okay, which one do I actually like? And oh, no, I take issue with this. Let me redline it. It's unrealistic. So what we've done in technology and digital technology specifically is actually pass the buck of, of like responsibility for structural integrity to, to the end user. Um, it doesn't work in any other technological field that requires expertise and licensing. But for some reason, it works in, in, in digital technology. Like, if we, if we were to build a bridge or a building and we were to build it really fast because we've got to show that hockey stick curve, right? We've got to build the bridge faster than the other guy can build the bridge, but it crumbles into the bay. Does the person still have an engineering title or do they have, they have to answer to authorities, right? But we're building digital environments all the time that take shortcuts with user privacy, user, user safety, user consent, because the incentives in, in digital technology are just different. It's we haven't created a, a kind of floor for minimum viable safety requirements the way we have with physical architectures, which is a, a real disservice to, to society because we spend more of our time in digital architectures than we do in physical architectures. I mean, sure, yes, I'm sitting in my, in my home on, on my chair, but I conduct absolutely none of my business without intermediating it through technology. It is critical infrastructure, but the professional approach to digital technology is that it's still kind of like just a game break things, test it out, see what works, get to market faster. At some point, we have to catch up to the fact that actually this is critical infrastructure. We have to take it as seriously as we do the medical field, the legal field, like any other field where if I build something that's unsafe for humans and that maybe in the short term creates a bridge, but in the long term actually kills a lot of people, we don't allow that to get to market. We don't build that bridge. We don't build that aircraft. We don't build that metaverse. So how do we fix that? I think there's a real opportunity for the for technologists to, as I like to say, grow up and become become adults. We've been saying that like software is eating the world for 11 years, and we've definitely eaten the world. And we are no longer a growing boy. We should act like adults, and we should treat ourselves as a serious industry that has standards that determines, like, sits down together as leaders in a field and says, okay, what what are some ways in which we can build social media platforms that we definitely don't want to repeat because we have seen how those how those technologies or those particular architectures lead to human suffering and avoid them like it's not like we're reinventing the internet right now we we actually have the lessons from the past 10 years 10 
15 years of social media to, to lean on. So we don't have to like fly blind to determine in general, broad strokes, what doesn't work and what does work. And we don't have to rely on regulation for this because regulation so far hasn't done technology any good, like GDPR and CCPA, physically GDPR, all that's done is give the, the idea that consent exists kind of free reign. We have this idea of like, okay, I guess I've, uh, I've accepted or I have rejected this cookie and now I'm in control of my data. So that's actually just like lulling us into this idea that the government has taken care of us, but it has not. It has not done anything substantive to protect our privacy. So I don't, I'm very reluctant to rely on regulation in general because it's usually architected by people that don't understand granularly what they're doing because that's not their job. Their job is to be regulators and legislators, not, not technologists in our case. And it's far too downstream, right? If you have to come up with a law to protect something, can we step back and say, what happened further upstream at the system design level to create the conditions for this to have to be regulated? And maybe we can redesign it you know, from the beginning. And so the people that actually design things are the engineers, the, the product managers, the founders, and the in- investors that create the incentives for the founders to make certain design choices and not make certain design choices. So it's actually in our field. We, we have to decide, you know what, if we're going to have we're going to give the title engineer to people, we should impose certain ethical and like integrity standards on the types of things that we build. And all of us have to agree not to build a certain way because otherwise we kind of run into this like gigantic prisoner's dilemma. You mentioned the metaverse before. How are these problems going to either get worse in the metaverse or does the metaverse offer some sort of opportunity here to fix some of these things and, and get it right the first time as we kind of transition into more virtual communities and, and worlds and so forth? It's such an interesting question because I work in the metaverse, so to speak. I work for a company that's building the navigation engine for, for the metaverse. So that's search, right? So search is kind of the last place. Before search, there is the platform itself that we have to search, right? And before the platform, there's the user who gets onto the platform. And does that user have... The, the right optionality available to them to decide like, okay, what parts of me and my data and my interactions do I want to be saved in some database somewhere versus which ones do I just want to be deleted? As I think about building the navigation engine for the open metaverse, I have all these questions in mind, like, are the worlds that are building metaverses thinking about user consent and safety? And if there's going to be 10 or 100 or 1,000 different metaverse worlds, then are we really asking users to familiarize themselves with 10 or 100 or 1,000 different privacy menus, in which case they won't. They're going to get into consent theater, just like we have right now in the regular internet, not the metaverse, where we don't understand what we're consenting to. We don't know where to manage our consent or privacy options because there's just too much much of it available. It's not kind of centralized around the user in any one place where the user has like a control, like a control panel for their entire kind of digital experience. So yes, it will get worse if we don't actually make some changes now. If we don't, if we don't, as as the companies that are building the open metaverse determine, okay, well, we have to figure out a manageable way to present user options for their for their privacy, for their identity, and for their consent that is interoperably accepted by every single world that's building for the metaverse. That is legible and easy to understand. It doesn't require you know a law degree for the user to be able to parse. We have the power to do this now because. The greatest latitude that you have to change how the eventual system will look is at the outset, right? Because there's not, you don't have all this like institutional inertia to, to unpack. You, you're just designing from the beginning. So 
It's really just, do we have the willpower or are we going to be lazy about this? Are we going to make the choice that's going to get us more users quicker? Or are we going to slow down together as an entire industry and say, hold on, where are we storing these biometrics? And should we be storing these biometrics? And can the user very easily revoke access to their biometrics? This is more of a cultural question, but it feels to me like within crypto DGen communities, there's both a simultaneous fetishizing of anonymity and pseudonymity and having and using an avatar rather than using your genuine name and face and so forth, which would seem to be maybe like an indicator that people do care about personal privacy more. And yet at the same time, there's this very strong fidelity to transparency and accountability and the idea of there being a public ledger as being fundamental to the blockchain and having that be very open and transparent. So square that circle for me a little bit because it sometimes feels like it's like pulling in both directions a little bit. And it's not that these things can't coexist, but like, what is it that we want more of? Like, is it the transparency and the kind of openness and the truth? Or is it the ability to, to create our own identities? And like, why is it that we're feeling all this ambivalence as we venture into a new technology space? I actually think it's because most people in crypto don't really understand privacy or information security too well. They have figured out, or we, I should say we because I work in crypto, have figured out that platform lock-in. So that's like, that's like Facebook does, which is take in all your data and lock you in and you can't take it anywhere. And if you delete your account, you can't just like reuse your entire social graph. If we do away with platform lock-in and open up the social graph, then we have solved surveillance capitalism. We've, we've kind of solved the worst ills of the Web 2.0 era. But that's only one of the, what I call primitives that give rise to surveillance capitalism, which is platform lock-in, right? There's also the missing identity layer, which we're sort of starting to figure out with wallets, but it's very difficult to manage them. And the average user who is well-attuned and understands crypto has multiple wallets and they're not, they're, it's really difficult to toggle between them. There's the unchecked data exhaust. So that's like, can, do I have control over how much data is I'm just emanating, signal that I'm just emanating as I go about my business? In crypto, everything's default public. So you actually don't have any control. You can't say like, I actually want to access gate this piece of information to only people that have a certain credential. We're just starting to have those conversations now in crypto where we're talking about gating information and giving, maybe making everything default private. And then if you meet a certain criteria, then you can view that information. And then the consent theater, we're doing the same thing in crypto that we're doing in Web 2.0, which is in Web 2.0, like here's your inscrutable terms of service or your cookie policy, accept or reject. And in crypto, it's do your own research. It's not my job, right? I'm washing my hands of this as a developer, you figure it out. So you're imposing this, this impossible level of expertise on users because you are unwilling to, you as a, as a founder, as an, as an engineer, as a product designer, unwilling to take the responsibility that your title implies and say, I want to build something that I'm proud of, that's safe, that, that I know I've made good trade-offs with, instead of having to make the user the expert. Should there be the equivalent of like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but for like data privacy or data ownership? Yes, absolutely. We are playing whack-a-mole in like open societies right now with data where We'll come up with a privacy law here that is completely inconsistent with a privacy law somewhere else. And so it's really difficult for a company to even figure out how to follow the laws and how to be compliant. And they give 
the existence of the laws give people a, a false sense of security that someone has done the work to, some expert out there has done the work to figure out how to protect their privacy so they don't have to. This is actually a really huge coordination challenge and it needs to rise to the level of like of national policy because when our minds and our heuristics and our preferences as a society are exploitable, we make ourselves vulnerable to bad actors. And I don't just mean bad actors who are scammers or hackers. I mean, foreign, foreign adversaries who are able to understand where the fault lines of our particular open democracy lie and how to, how to use them against us. Um, so we've just recently figured out as a government with Biden, figured out how to take cybersecurity more seriously. But cybersecurity is one aspect. That's kind of information security. What are we doing about privacy? How are we protecting the cognitive agency, the cognitive freedom, the, the consent of people using online spaces? As much as I would love to see a, you know, Elizabeth Warren or an Amy Klobuchar grab Mark Zuckerberg by the lapels and like shake him or like Elon Musk, this isn't just a national issue. There are international problems and TikTok now has the most users out of anyone, supposedly. And regardless of what our national system is here in the United States, if China doesn't play ball, we're going to have a proliferation of apps that continue to prey on people's privacy. How can we deal with such a problem that is international in scope, given that we can, can't even coordinate here at home? This is a really, really big problem to, to start to actually ask questions about. I don't have solutions, right? But the fact is, we haven't had conversations about this. People aren't asking questions about how to coordinate against centralized governments that have lower coordination costs, like China, that can decide, you know what, it's probably not good for our kids to, to be scrolling TikTok after 10 p.m. or what is it, like 9 p.m., whatever their law is. So they don't. There's a law against it. So you can't do it. There's information that can't reach inside the borders of China or Russia because both governments consider information to be to tools of war, right? And I've I've heard multiple Russian propagandists say this, like, why are we allowing American propaganda on our soil that's changing how our, how our citizens think about what we're doing? This is actually a tool of diplomacy and national policy. Let's take control over it. I am not saying by any means that open societies should move in this direction because I don't think we should be fighting chaos with dystopias, but it is important to raise the question that when our coordination costs between, between companies, between founders, between governments, between all the actors in a free society, when the coordination costs are so high because you kind of have to negotiate your way through, you have to reach agreements, certain things put us at a disadvantage compared to a government that's able to pay a very low coordination cost, which is just to say, hey, do this, this is a policy now, and kind of run circles around us in terms of internet freedoms, what kind of information reaches our shores versus their shores. It is actually a policy issue. And it's not an Elizabeth Warren that's going to figure it out. It's not an, a non-expert in technology that's going to figure it out. It's the experts who build technology that need to, I guess, develop a discipline of mind and an awareness of things like public choice economics, thinking about externalities and not, not just thinking about designing the fastest critical path to the intended user. Like, what are the externalities of the product that I'm building? How might it be misused? Can I include that as part of the problem set? Who needs to be aware of what I'm building? So these are sort of questions that are not part of the education of a software engineer or really part of the 
the equation when you're a founder. Like that's just not something that your investors are asking you to think about. But we increasingly have to at least develop the discipline of mind to ask these questions because they're not even on our radar right now. And that's where we become incredibly vulnerable. So I am totally supportive of your belief that a, a grand technologist will come who believes in privacy and treats humans like humans. But I, I just can't see it. So what's the forcing mechanism? Is it that I can sue Facebook for misusing my data and it goes to a specific individual person that I'm like, you at Facebook mess this up and I am taking money from you? Is it some type of we will throw you in jail? Because you are absolutely right that like if you're an engineer and you build a bridge and it, it falls, your license gets taken away, but you can be sued. You can be held liable. So how do you anticipate actually holding technologists accountable rather than thinking that at some point we will finally grow up, as I hope we all do, right? I don't think there's a grand technologist. Like, I don't really believe in like the great, the great man theory of history either. It's all kind of just emergent, like balls hitting each other and like sometimes becoming like complex molecules. But I, I think that industry self-regulation is at least a start. I think that just determining some baseline of what is safe versus isn't, and then making that subject to maybe class action law possibly becomes a way to go. I know that tort law definitely needs to be updated because right now we have four torts that regulate all of privacy and they're just basically like harm-based torts. Like, have you used my likeness? Have you stolen something that I, that I made? Which were created in a century long before digital media. So they're not representative and they're not, they don't encompass the way that privacy harms are experienced today. So there's sort of multi-pronged approaches here. There's law, there's industry self-regulation, there's even admitting that certain things are unsafe. Before it gets to the, to the point where we have like national law, I think that the industry itself has to, has to come together and issue rec- a recommendation. I don't know, but I definitely don't think that we can continue currently the way things are going with technology and innovation and technology specifically accelerating at an exponential rate and not kind of come head to head with what I think is going to be a pretty catastrophic situation. Final question for you. Is there a policymaker, politician, elected official that gives you hope that you feel maybe has a little bit of a handle on these issues, is headed in the right direction? Or if not a policymaker, is there somebody kind of in the public sphere that you would recommend that people watch, listen to, read, etc.? There isn't a politician right now that would be that gives me any hope whatsoever, uh, whether across the pond in the EU or, or at home currently. There is a thinker that I can recommend. I'm very interested in the work of Daniel Schmachtenberger, whose work on exploring kind of existential risks in technology and in, in policy and in economics and in natural resources, kind of exploring all those multiple risks, what he calls multipolar traps, and trying to find ways to state the problem more completely so that we can actually come up with solutions that are fully encompassing and not kind of whack-a-mole solutions where we fix one thing, but it creates this problem somewhere else. His work has actually been really interesting and inspiring. And if you are excited about any of the issues that we talked about here, you will be a lot more excited by anything you hear from Daniel Schmachtenberger. So with that, let's go to our final segment where we each talk about something we've been following in the news, either culturally or politically. 
Anastasia, why don't you go first? Well, um, I actually want to upend the question a little bit. It's what I haven't been following in the news. When the conflict in Ukraine broke out, I was watching it every morning, listening directly to the propaganda channels from Russia, just to get a handle on how is this being spun? What are the narratives that are being shared? How are people being manipulated by by the Kremlin to believe that this is a special operation, that we are fighting Nazis, that America is creating an anti-Russia in Ukraine. And I've lost access to that first person account of the propaganda in Russia because Google's changed its policies on YouTube and there's been sanctions. And so we can't actually see, I can't see or hear directly what is being said. So I think that's kind of a net loss for information because um, I'm unable to contextualize this for my friends, for my colleagues, for people who are interested in the conflict, contextualize it in the way that only a native Russian speaker could do. This week, I haven't done a cultural recommendation in a while, so I wanted to talk about a new show on Netflix that I've been anticipating for a long time. Uh, The show is called The Sandman and is based on the comic series by Neil Gaiman that ran from 1989 to 1996. Uh, You might know Neil Gaiman from his other works like American Gods or Good Omens, but if you haven't heard of him, he's a fantastic fantasy author, and the Sandman comics really marked a paradigm shift in how people thought about comics. The art style was unique, the topics were incredibly progressive for the time and even progressive now, and the story was not just superheroes bashing into each other. It was thought to be unadaptable for TV and movies. But I'm telling you right now that the Netflix series does a really great job of it. It's still weird, it's still dark, and it's still at times incredibly troubling. But it's also incredibly good, and I would highly recommend it. Zoe, what are you following this week? What I'm following this week is a little bit salacious. The journalist Maggie Haberman, who's at the New York Times, has a book coming out uh, in a couple months called Confidence Man, which is about President Trump. She revealed a while back that. Her reporting indicated that somebody in the White House, likely President Trump, allegedly, was regularly flushing paper and notes from the White House down toilets in the White House. And this sparked a bit of uh, interesting controversy when it first was published. But now there are photos that are that have been uh, released and are available, and it both feels totally crazy and absurd and funny and at the same time kind of disturbing because the destroying of documents is a pretty serious issue in our democracy. So I have been following that story. Excellent. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver. Follow Zoe at Z Weinberg. And where can people follow you, Anastasia? Anastasia U on Twitter. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the fine people of the White House Plumbing and Document Retention Office. Keeping the water pressure high in the shower? Can do. Remove and restore vital documentation about crimes of the president. They're on it. So do your patriotic duty and join the White House Plumbing and Document Retention Office today. And after you do, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.